0: All right, we're going to go ahead and get started here right on the dot. Um, continuing in our, our Sunday school survey of the, the books of the New Testament. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you all last Sunday. Uh, seven inches of snow had something to say about that. But I'm, I can't deny that I was thankful for another week uh, to spend prepping to teach this monumental. Book this epistle of Paul to the Colossians. So before we dive in, let's go to our Lord in prayer, ask his blessing on um, our study in the word. Our Father, um, Lord, you are holy. And we thank you for your holiness, your majesty, your authority and power that are on display in Jesus Christ in this book that we are going to uh, unpack together this morning for uh, this brief time. I ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us, to open our understanding, and to allow us to behold the glory and the majesty and supremacy of Jesus Christ. May he be exalted, and we place our whole confidence in your promise that your word will not return void to you. And Lord, we are excited to, to hear what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so three weeks ago, we were incredibly blessed to have Michael do such an excellent job teaching us about Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, But when the man who was tasked with delivering that letter to the church at Ephesus, Tychicus, uh, accompanied by Onesimus, uh, the runaway slave who Paul had met in in Rome and and brought to Christ, when these men got off the ship at Ephesus after a month-long journey from Rome... They were actually carrying three more letters from Paul, all of them uh, that had been written at the same time, one to the church in Laodicea, um, one to an individual named Philemon, and one to a church plant in the city of Colossae. Colossians is, in a lot of ways, a parallel letter to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, dealing with a lot of Similar themes, the centrality of the gospel, the doctrines of grace, the nature of the believer's union with Christ and the unity of the church. But these are also distinct letters from one another, each with their own unique emphasis. Where in Ephesians, we have Paul highlighting the church as the body of Christ. In Colossians, his primary emphasis is on Christ as the head of the church. So to deliver this letter... Tychicus and Onesimus would hike another 100 miles inland uh, in what is today western Turkey to reach the town of Colossae. In uh, the 5th century BC, Colossae had been one of the most important trade centers in the ancient world. We're told that King Xerxes, um, when he marched his army to Thermopylae in 41 BC, he stopped off at Colossae to resupply because this was the, the most significant city in the region. Uh, But in the first century B.C., about 100 years before this letter was written, the the Roman government actually moved the main trade road that passed through Colossae um, further to the west, nearer to this new settlement of Laodicea. And kind of like what you saw happen to Radiator Springs in the movie Cars, when Colossae got bypassed, the city slowly begins to die. So by Paul's day... It had declined from a major trade center in the world to little more than a market town. Commentator J.B. Lightfoot points out that of all Paul's letters, Colossians was by far to the least significant city. So after stopping off at Laodicea to deliver Paul's letter there, Tychicus and Onesimus go another 15 miles further east to Onesimus' home of Colossae. And when they arrive there, they come to a church that is under threat. So, to get a little bit of this church's history, the Colossian Church had been founded just a few years earlier through the evangelistic ministry of a man named Epaphras. Now, when Epaphras, uh, who was from Colossae, had visited Ephesus um, during the years that Paul was ministering there on his third missionary journey, Epaphras heard the gospel, put his faith in Jesus Christ, and then he returned home sharing this good news. With his neighbors, and in this dying town, new life sprang up as a church plant was established. Now, most likely, this church plant was pastored by Epaphras, and things were initially going great. Their faith in Christ was evident. Their heart of love for other believers um, was growing, uh, which is usually when the enemy makes his move against the church. So this church was in danger. What were they in danger from? At some point, certain men, certain influential teachers had begun to spread among these believers a serious and a spiritually deadly false teaching. There's been a lot of conjecture about what exactly the Colossian error was. Uh, Some scholars believe its roots to have been in pagan worship of spirit beings that was commonly practiced at the time while others see the influence of a a legalistic Judaism, which also had a a large presence uh, in the region. And it seems most probable that both pagan superstition and Jewish legalism had sort of uh, combined together in in this early form of a a Hellenistic philosophy called Gnosticism. Uh, Now, Gnosticism would gain a huge following in the 2nd century A.D., Um, And its teaching today continues uh, in things like um, transgenderism. Basically, Gnosticism teaches that the material world is evil and only the spiritual is is what matters. Uh, Essentially, body, bad, spirit, good. Uh, And this continues to have an impact on the world today. So it's probably this proto-Gnosticism that Paul was confronting. And what we know for certain, and what we can see clearly in the letter he wrote is that the Colossian heresy sought, one, to minimize Christ, attacking the truths of his incarnation, his divine nature, as well as his literal, physical death and resurrection. As well, it sought to undermine the sufficiency of the gospel by trying to add to it this secret higher knowledge and imposing a legalistic, man-made set of works necessary for salvation. So in this regard... The Colossian heresy is not a lot different from the main heresies that we see today in the church. It has always been the enemy's tactic that to destroy a church, you destroy its Christology. So when Epaphras saw the foothold that this heresy was gaining in the church and he recognized the danger, he went for help. He went to find Paul, only at this time, Paul was no longer in Ephesus. He had been arrested in Jerusalem, and he was taken to Rome, which was effectively the other side of the world from Colossae. So this small-town pastor makes the almost 1,500-mile trek over land and sea to Rome to find Paul and to get help for this faltering church. And when he finally did reach Rome and gets to speak with Paul, he tells him everything that's been happening with this church And of the danger that they're in from these false teachers. And soon, help was on the way in the form of this letter. Paul may have been in shackles in Rome, but via his letter to the Colossians, he was going to war. A good shepherd defending the flock of Christ against these ravening wolves. And Paul's battle plan that he lays out in the letter has two main goals in mind. One is to warn to build up the church's defenses against false doctrine and to teach, equipping these believers with the resources that they are going to need to grow in maturity. And his single weapon, the double-edged theological sword Paul uses to accomplish both of these ends is the proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ. So The corrupting influence of these false teachers had been spreading like an infection through this body of believers, and Paul is going to administer a shot of Christological penicillin. The truth that that is driving him to write, his big idea, and the main theme we should get from this letter, is that the preeminent Christ is the life of the church. Therefore, a right understanding of his supremacy the sufficiency of his work, and the nature of our union with him is vital to the growth and the maturity of the church. So Paul's goal here with this letter is to pull back the curtain, to fix the eyes of these Colossian saints on the person and work of Christ, and then to flesh out the practical implications for their lives that flow out of who Jesus is. So, by way of an outline for the book, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we have Paul's greeting. And then we have these five main portions of the body of the letter in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, Paul's prayer for the church. In verses 15 through 23, his proclamation of Christ. In verses 24 through the end of chapter 1, Paul's ministry to the church. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 23, we have this exposition of the gospel, as well as a refutation of the Colossian error. And then in chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 6, we have practical instruction for the life of the church. And then from verse 7 of chapter 4 through the end of the book, Paul's final greeting. So this is our outline. Let's begin our survey of the book by by jumping into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 with Paul's greeting. He opens the letter with his standard from to greeting that he often uses. And these, these aren't flyover verses, we shouldn't skip them. Every word of Scripture is inspired and carries unique significance to the author's intended meeting. And so in his greeting, Paul actually signals where he's going in the rest of the letter. So look down at verse 1. We read, Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, so from Paul. What does he say about himself? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle meaning one who is sent, an ambassador of Jesus. So Paul's instruction here, we should understand, bears all of the weight of Christ's authority in the church. He's an apostle by the will of God, a role he's been appointed to by God's sovereign choice, and Timothy, our brother, by including Timothy as the sender of this letter, Paul is, is emphasizing the unity and solidarity of church leadership behind what he is teaching. And by his use of these familial terms of relationship, our brother to the brothers at Colossae, Paul is, is right out of the gate calling their attention to this radical unity that believ- believers have with one another as the body of Christ, So, from Paul, the apostle, and Timothy to the saints. Saints is a word which means holy ones. Those who have been set apart by God for his own purpose. And faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He calls them faithful or loyal brothers. Now, the purpose for which they have been set apart and the person to whom their loyalty is is exactly where Paul is going so then with his blessing, grace to you, and peace from God our Father, he launches into the body of the letter. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we have the first main segment to this letter with Paul's prayer for the church. First thing he does is to tell these believers what he and Timothy and Epaphras are all constantly praying for them. And this isn't, this isn't some trite hey, you guys are in our thoughts and prayers. Um, We are sending you good vibes. No, Paul is deliberately telling them the specific content of their prayers in wrestling for these believers, both what he's thanking God for and what he is asking God for on their behalf. So by telling them what he's thanking God for, Paul is actually highlighting the work that God has already done in them, saying, we are giving thanks ever since we heard about your faith in Christ, your love for all the saints, which is fueled by the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. This is God's work in them. And then by sharing with the Colossian church what he's asking God to do in them in the future, Paul is essentially casting a vision for what true spiritual maturity in the church looks like. By doing this, he's not only providing for them a a goal, which they are to dependently be striving towards and praying for, but he's also giving them a pattern of true, genuine maturity against which they can test all counterfeits. In verses 3-14, through Paul outlines five spiritual benchmarks of maturity that by God's grace, this church is to grow in. The first thing, well, and what we, what we ought to see throughout all of these is that true spiritual maturity is radically Christ-centered. All of these elements that Paul is praying for hinge upon the person of Jesus. So the first thing Paul says that he is praying for this church is that they will be filled with the knowledge of his will, We often hear people say, boy, I just really wish I knew God's will for my life. I wish I just knew uh, who I'm supposed to marry or what job I'm supposed to take, what car I should buy. And what we sometimes mean by this is, I I wish God would run his plans past me uh, to get my okay on them. Uh, But this isn't really what Paul is getting at. What he has in view is that these believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's revealed will that is found in his word. See, we don't have to wonder what God's will is for our life. He's made it all clearly known to us in the pages of Scripture and to Paul's point. A spiritually mature believer, a mature church, will be saturated with God's word and empowered by his spirit with wisdom in its application. He says, so as to, in order that they may, and here's our second benchmark, walk worthy Of the Lord. So the second element that Paul is praying for this church is a life that in every aspect is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The meaning worthy here um, is not merit, but rather congruency. To walk worthy does not mean that we could somehow deserve or earn Christ's favor. This word for worthy is actually a a market term that means a, a balance in the scales. So, walk worthy means a life that is consistently fitting with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It it matches up, which brings us to the third benchmark that Paul is praying for this church that they would be fully pleasing to him. A spiritually mature church will ultimately be concerned with one thing What is it that pleases Christ? What are his priorities? The word here for please, to to be fully pleasing in the ancient world, referred to a a servant who caters to the every whim of their sovereign. So our service to Christ, Paul is saying, must not be half-hearted, but a dedicated and passionate mission to be fully pleasing to him in every area. And what pleases Christ is that we bring glory to the Father by bearing fruit. As he told his followers in John 15 verse 8, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So not just some fruit, not the bare minimum of fruit, but much fruit. And this fruit bearing is the fourth benchmark of maturity which Paul is praying for the church as he says He's praying that they would bear fruit in every good work. I want us to take notice of the modifiers that Paul keeps using in this prayer, asking that they would be fully pleasing in every good work, strengthened with all power. So these are holistic, comprehensive terms, and they point to a completeness to our life in Jesus Christ, showing that a spiritually mature church will be holistically progressing in Christ-likeness. Paul also says that a mature church will be progressing in its theology. He says, I'm praying that you would be increasing in the knowledge of God. C.H. Spurgeon once said, the proper study of God's elect is God." The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. Now, this was Paul's heart for this church. It's what he's praying for. And so far, these, these elements of God-given, Christ-centered maturity, we've seen Paul praying for the Colossians, or that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, walk worthy of him, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And these would seem like an impossibly daunting standard, if not for verse 11, which points us to the source of power for such a life, Paul prays that these believers might be strengthened with all power or every needful kind of power, according to, that is corresponding with, and flowing from his glorious might. The word here translated might or, or kratos in the Greek means not simply strength, but strength that is exerted. It is about power that is at work. And the word also carries the idea of dominion power. So, the might by which Christ is at work, bringing about his kingdom rule, is the same power by which he strengthens the church for maturity. So, what does Paul say that we are strengthened by Christ for? He says, for all endurance and patience with joy. So this endurance is the endurance that Jesus described in his parable of the the different types of soil when he said that some seed fell among good soil and it sprang up bearing fruit with endurance. The idea is that Jesus' dominion power at work strengthens his church for a steadfast endurance in bearing spiritual fruit, as well as a long-suffering patience in enduring trial. So in his seventh benchmark of maturity, Paul's prayer for the church, he reveals the heart attitudes out of which all of these previous elements flow. As he prays in verse 12, that they might with joy be giving thanks to the Father. A heart of joyful thanksgiving will typify the mature church. And the basis for this unquenchable, thankful joy, Paul says, is found in the gospel, in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In verses 12 through 14, he gives us two examples of what God has accomplished through the gospel that should fuel our joy and our thanksgiving. The first thing is qualification. In verse 12 he says, who has qualified you to share with the inheritance of the saints in light? Give thanks to God who has qualified you Think of what this truth would have meant to these Colossians. Those of them who were Jewish were first disqualified from participation in synagogue life by their profession of Christ. The Gentiles had been disqualified from participation in certain aspects of civic life by denying their pagan gods. And now false teachers in the church want to disqualify them if they don't embrace their heretical legalistic practices But Paul is saying, it is God who has qualified you with the only qualification which truly matters. This qualification that is spoken of is an action fully completed in the past when by faith in Christ, they were justified, declared righteous. And what it means is they are now able to share with the inheritance of the saints in light There's a seat at the family table of God for them. They're no second-class citizens, but heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that God has accomplished for his church through Christ that should fuel our joy and thanks, Paul says, is deliverance. In verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This emancipation of God's elect from the dominion of sin and death and the transferal of our citizenship and our allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ should fire within the hearts of every believer joy and thankfulness to God. Ours is the kingdom, and this privileged status has been secured for us by God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the purchase price for us. Paul says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he's, he has cast a vision for the church of Christ-centered, Christ-energized, God-given maturity that is radically submitted, holistically bearing fruit and empowered by Christ, flowing out of a thankfulness for the gospel And every aspect of this prayer for the church is radically centered on Christ, that they might know his will, walk worthy of him, be fully pleasing to him, be strengthened by him. And Paul is praying for these things because he knows that spiritual maturity centers on and flows out of the person of Jesus Christ. So in the second half of chapter one, Christ becomes all of Paul's focus. In verses 15 through 23, he kicks things into high gear in his bold proclamation of the person of Christ. So, this section of chapter one, theologians have called the single most Christ exalting passage in all of Scripture. But it stands out not because of Paul's soaring oratory or flowery language. On the contrary, his statements about Jesus are clear, concise, and definitive. He is, he is, he is. Unpacking these truths about Jesus' deity, his majesty, and his authority in rapid-fire succession, Paul is setting the record straight because he knows that it is absolutely essential to the life of this church that they rightly understand and properly respond to who Christ is. In verse 15, Paul boldly proclaims seven truths about the person of Jesus, which lead up to one central truth concerning the Father's purpose in him. So the first we see in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Meaning that Christ, Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He is the corporeal embodiment of all of God's fullness, all that God is, is seen in Jesus Christ. So this is an echo of what Jesus said himself in John 14, verse nine. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. More than any other point, Paul drives this home that Jesus is God. He makes this central to his argument because in the church at Colossae, this doctrine, the divine nature of Christ, was under direct assault. The false teachers are are claiming there that Jesus is not God, but merely one of an infinite number of spirit beings which emanate from God that we have to pray to to reveal God to us. But Paul cuts the legs out from underneath this blasphemy and this glorious statement. that he restates in verse 19, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God of very God. And as such, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, This is a passage which can be misunderstood and is often misused. Jehovah's Witnesses will use this as a proof text to say that firstborn of creation here uh, means that Jesus had a beginning, that he is part of creation. But that is, this is wrong for two reasons. Firstly, firstborn in Scripture does not always refer to birth or physical beginning. As it's often used to signify an exalted preeminent status. In Psalm 89 verse 27, speaking of David, we read, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. So David being firstborn of the kings of the earth doesn't mean that he was born first out of all of them, but that he is exalted over the kings of the earth. And that is the usage of this word firstborn here in Colossians 1.15. The second reason that this verse is not saying that Christ is part of creation has to do with how, our, how we use the word of. We use this word many different ways. I can say that this pulpit is made of wood. And there's, a, there's an intended equivalence there. But if I say that my brother Ryan Lawson is coach of a Little League girls basketball team I don't mean that he's a 10-year-old girl. Uh, when I say he's coach of the team, I mean that he's coach over the team. So that's the, that's the way that of is being used here in verse 15. If any of you are reading from a, an NIV translation, the, the translators got this uh, very right by, by saying that he is firstborn over creation. Um, he is exalted over creation, Paul says, because... He is the creator in verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is a staggeringly comprehensive statement from Paul. All things. That is to say, everything not God that was created was created through Jesus Christ. This phrase, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, is how Paul refers to the spiritual spiritual realm and all spirit beings that exist, whether angels or demons. Basically, Paul is telling these Colossians, hey, you know those elemental spirits that you're telling people are more powerful than Christ and that they need to pray to? They don't hold a candle to him. Whatever spirit beings exist... All of them are infinitely inferior to Christ because he made them. And they, along with everything else, were created for Christ. Theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Verse 17, and he is before all things. So this speaks both of his being chronologically before all things and before all things in his eminence. The preeminent Christ is before all things, eternally preexistent. As Christ said, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Nothing comes before him. And in him, all things hold together. So I'm not a molecular scientist or anything, but one of the first things I learned about molecules is that they're made up of a lot of empty space. You know, the, the particles, between the particles that, that hold this universe together and everything that we see, um, there's this space. And honestly, science cannot explain how these atoms and these molecules hold together together. Or what that force is that keeps them from spinning into oblivion? Paul has the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is holding everything together. And the more that you think about this truth, that everything is sustained by him, has its existence through his power, the more amazing that truth becomes. It's one thing to to say, yes, yes, I I know that, that Jesus created everything. It's another to understand that the reason I'm... I have my being, the reason I can take a breath, the reason my heart beats, the reason I don't fly apart into a million particles, the reason the whole universe exists is that Jesus Christ, by his all-sovereign power, is sustaining it. It's an amazing truth Paul is giving to the church. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. So here's the theological basis for everything which which this Christ-centered focus of, of Paul's has been, that he's been praying for the church, that they be filled with the knowledge of his will, fully pleasing to him, because the life and service of the church is to Christ. He is the head. He is the authority. We also read that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is truly incredible. What Paul is saying here is that the all-sovereign power of Christ, which was on display at creation, is on display again in the new creation through his resurrection. He who was firstborn of creation when all things were made is restoring his creation by becoming the firstborn from the dead in the new creation. The creator is making all things new. That Jesus is firstborn from the dead means that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has pioneered the new life which he gives to his elect. So we've seen these seven statements about Jesus' person from Paul. And then verse 18, we come to this one central truth of the divine purpose concerning him. That in everything, He's the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church. That in everything, he might be preeminent. So this is the only time in, in all of Scripture that we see this Greek word used. It's translated preeminent here for us, Proteon, And it literally means to come to have the first place. And it shares the same root word as all of these other titles which Paul has used for Jesus in leading up to this. So the way that this passage reads is he is firstborn of creation, first before all things, firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be first. The purpose for which our sovereign God has ordered all things The reason that God the Son took human form, died on a cross, and is reconciling sinners to himself is so that he alone might have first place, exalted over all, chief and head of the church, for in him all the fullness of God, Paul says, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace By the blood of his cross. So, today, in the church, there is a deadly false teaching, even more pervasive than the Gnosticism that Paul was dealing with, which also seeks to minimize Christ. And it is that brand of easy believism preached in churches across the world today that says you can receive the Jesus who saves you from your sin without receiving the Jesus who lays claim to lordship over your life. This thinking is incompatible with the gospel that Paul preaches. And hell will be full with people who prayed a prayer that someone told them meant they were saved, yet never submitted their lives to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, Paul, having held the church's gaze on the supreme person of Jesus now pivots to shine a light on his saving work in them. In verse 21, he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So we've seen Paul cast a vision for Christ-centered maturity in the church. We've heard him proclaim boldly the person of Jesus Christ, both in his supremacy and in the sufficiency of his work of reconciliation. And in this next major section, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 1, we read about Paul's ministry and his mission in the church. There's a few things he wants these believers to know about his apostolic priority among them. And he summarizes this ministry by telling them his commission from God, what God has tasked him to do, and then by giving him his mission statement in the ministry. He says that he has been given by God a stewardship for the church, a commission to make the word of God fully known. And this word that Paul is tasked by God to preach and to explain to the church, he summarizes as the mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed to the saints, the gospel, that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God has given Paul a task to unpack and to explain this glorious gospel doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Through faith. This is what is meant by Christ in us. The life of Christ indwells and empowers the church through his Holy Spirit. In verses 28 through 29, Paul gives his mission statement. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul has this one priority in his ministry, one task, to proclaim Christ and teaching, warning the church concerning him with one ultimate aim, and that is to see believers grow into full maturity so that on the day of Christ, they may be presented to him an offering of praise. So this is exactly what Paul is doing in his letters to the Colossians. And it's what he continues to do in chapter 2, proclaiming Jesus and unpacking this truth of the nature of the believer's union with Christ and how this negates the legalistic ritualism of these false teachers. So the fourth major section we find in chapter 2, verse 1 through 23, life in Christ and a repudiation of false teachers. Paul says that your hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The argument of these Gnostic teachers was convincing. It sounded good, which made it all the more deadly. And this is why Paul urges believers to grow in their knowledge of Christ as the surest fortification against counterfeit truth. The gospel must not be added to. Through it, we receive Jesus, and he is enough. Paul says in verse six of chapter two, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul's point is, If we are in Christ through faith, we have received Christ by his indwelling spirit. And the life of Christ in us is to be lived out in every aspect of our daily lives. Who he is will affect how I live if he lives in me. As one old country preacher used to say, when Christ comes, things change. In chapter 2, verse 9, Paul digs even deeper into this truth, showing us how the basis of the sanctified life is not found in asceticism or a list of man-made rules, but in what God does in us by our union with Christ through our baptism by the Spirit. See, in our fallen state, man has two problems. The first is that relative to God, we are spiritually dead, as Paul said, alienated from him. But secondly, relative to sin, we are very much alive. As citizens of the domain of darkness, sin was the air that we breathed. Rebellion was the blood in our veins. The old man was both alive to sin and dead to God. And in order to be reconciled, we needed to die to sin before we could be made alive to God. Jesus Christ accomplished this death for us on the cross, as Paul says in Romans, that having been made sin for us, the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. And our union with him through faith means that in a spiritual sense, our old man also is crucified. Our baptism by the Spirit into Jesus Christ is an execution of the body of the flesh. And the glory of this truth is that having died with Christ, he is firstborn from the dead, gives us this power that God raised him from the dead with, raising us to new life. Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 2, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made not with hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And how has he done this? How has he done this? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This speaks of how the Romans would nail the, the charge against a criminal being crucified over their head. And the Romans may have put over Jesus, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But what Paul is saying is that God the Father nailed over the head of his son the charges against you and against me. This is how our debt was canceled. This is how we die to sin and how the life of Christ gives us new life. Our debt was paid by him. In so doing, Paul says, God vindicated his righteousness before all rulers and authorities. In verse 15, he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him. So in light of these truths, Paul goes on to completely dismantle all the flimsy accusations of the false teachers. He says, therefore, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. No one can disqualify the one whom Christ has qualified. And we're out of time, and so very quickly I'm just going to, to share what this last section of the letter is about. Paul takes all of this glorious truth about who Jesus is, who we are in him, and he brings it down to where we live by applying it to the church in practical instruction. Chapters 3 verse 1 through 4 verse 6, he says, basically, if this is true of Christ, and this is true of you, here is what has to change. And there's no clearer description in the Bible of what true repentance looks like than Paul's description in Colossians in chapter 4 of putting off the works of darkness and putting on the new life in Christ. So he closes his letter with greetings to the brothers there in the church. He encourages Archippus, probably the acting pastor of this congregation, in Epaphras' absence. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So we've seen Paul's prayer for the church, his proclamation of Christ, his exposition of the gospel, and practical instruction to the church. And all of this teaches us that the preeminent Christ is the life of the church, and a right understanding of his supremacy, the sufficiency of his work, and the nature of our union with him is vital to the growth and the maturity of the church. In all things, may he have the first place. You're dismissed, and we'll gather back together here at 1030 for worship.